0: Good morning, my name is Brandon Barrett. I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. I'd also like to welcome you if you're a visitor. We're glad that you're with us this morning. Thanks for being here. Uh, If you're just joining us, we're in the middle of a series on the book of James. So if you'd like to be turning there, if you happen to be using one of our Pew Bibles, you'll find that on page um, 1011, right after the book of Hebrews. You might have noticed somewhere in your bulletin, I think it's printed, the title of the series is called Faith Works. Faith works. That though we are we are brought into relationship with God by His good, sovereign work, He brings us into His family. He takes us in. But then as we are brought into that family, James reminds us we are people that are to work out our faith, that our faith leads us into a kind of life of response to God. And so that's what James is about for us as believers in Jesus, responding to God's good work in our life. Let me pray for us and we'll uh, jump right in for our passage this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, uh, whether we realize it or not, very much in need of hearing from you. We need your word penetrating our hearts. We need your word doing its good work of changing us, of making us more and more like you, of calling us from death to life. So we pray right now, Lord, that you, by your spirit, would, would do that work as we open up our Bibles and as we hear from you. We lift this up to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures the grass withers and the flowers fade but the word of our lord stands forever amen if you've been with us you know that in the in, in James starting in in verse 1 and going up through verse 18 where we're ending up this morning James has been talking about trials He's been talking about the challenges, the trials, the tests that come to us all the time in life. They are always bombarding us. And you may well be in the midst of some uh, right now. You may have had some in the past couple weeks, and there may be some right around the corner that we don't even know about waiting for us this week. That We're people under trial. We all are. And so James brings uh, this to mind. He, he talks about, you know, even in verse 2 there, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials. God is at work. He's building steadfastness, He's building character into you. He's at work. He goes on and says for us in the middle of trials that we need wisdom. We are people who need wisdom desperately. And last week we looked at a couple of the specific trials that uh, James mentions the trial of both poverty and wealth, of both success and failure. So James has been bringing us right into the heart of trials. And this morning, he takes us to, uh, to a core truth about trials for us, and one that you, you know at a gut and experiential level, where, whether you've really put it together this way or not before. And it's this, that the trials of life bring with them temptations in life. Or at least that's the way we so often experience it. The trials in life present us with temptations. You know what that feels like when the hard edges of life, the things that are coming at you so quickly, begin to grab hold of our hearts, begin to pull us away, begin to do destructive things in us. We we begin to see ourselves responding and reacting in ways that veer us further off course. The, The trials of life bring temptations For us. And so James this morning brings us right to that temptations. How are we going to understand our temptations? How are we to see them? And so James points out three things for us about temptation. He talks about the source of our temptations, where they come from, the danger of our temptations, and he speaks to us of the path through our temptations. Okay, the dynamics of temptation. That's what James has for us this morning. Okay, so first, the the source of our temptations. Where Where do they come from? Uh, The temptations that come in the middle of our trials, when our trials are getting the best of us, when we find ourselves giving in, falling in, falling apart. What do we tend to do when our lives start to go off course like that? We pull out the finger and we point it somewhere, right? There's a reason for this. There's a reason for my temptation. There's a reason things are going wrong. And let me tell you about it. We begin to blame shift. We begin to point our finger at what's wrong. Um, maybe you've experienced some of these this week or something like it yourselves. Why did you hit your little brother? Because he took my matchbox car. Why are you giving your roommate the cold shoulder? Because you would not believe how inconsiderate she has been to me. Or why are you speaking so harshly about your teacher or your boss or your spouse or your coworker? Did you hear what they said about me? Or why the raised voice? Well, if you weren't making me mad, I wouldn't have to raise my voice. <laughs> why such shoddy work on that project? Well, if they even remotely paid me what I was worth, then maybe they get a good day's work out of me, right? Blame shifting, beginning to point the finger. Because when we shift the blame, we are saying that there is a source of my temptation, there is a source of my failure, and it's somewhere in the situation that I'm faced with or the people around me or something else out there. And when we do that, we are merely living out again a family trait, and it's been in our family for a long, long time. If you were to go back to the first three chapters of Genesis, you would read about the creation of the world, and you would read about God's creation of uh, the first couple, Adam and Eve, and he puts them in the middle of this good garden, and he says, all of this is yours. Go to town. Enjoy it all. It is for you. Everything except the fruit of that one tree over there, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You may have anything in the garden, but not that. And what do they do? Well, tragically, they go and they take the fruit. And as soon as that happens, life begins to unravel for them. And suddenly, these two people who were in such intimate relationship with each other and with God are now running. Listen to what Genesis 3 says as we pick up the story. Adam and Eve, after they've eaten the fruit, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? Now, when God asks a question like that, he's not looking for information. (laughs) He knows the answer to that. But he's calling to Adam, come out. Where are you? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. You hear what's going on? Our first parents. That woman that you gave me, right? That serpent over there, blame-shifting, pointing the finger. And that's what James gets to at the very first part of these verses we're looking at today. He says, where where does our temptation come from? Where is my sin, my struggling with temptation, where does it come from? Now, he goes and addresses the root accusation that we all bring, whether we realize it or not. When, when, When that question comes to us, we're very quick to say, it's in my situation. Or it's because of this person. That's why. But James knows... Underneath all of that, where did you know, your situations come from? Who do you think really in charge of your life? Where is all this coming from? And he knows that sooner or later, whether we consciously connect the dots or not, we're saying this. God. It's God's fault. I mean, he's the one who's testing me, isn't he? He's the one tempting me. And if God is against me, what can I do? There's no standing against God. There's no winning against him. It is his fault. James points out for us that this is the great lie. This great suspicion that James does not want to take hold of our souls. Because he knows as soon as you begin, as soon as I begin to point the finger at God, everything else is going to unravel. Because the one we are meant to trust most, we are going to be scared of, suspicious of, at a distance from. You may remember uh, Shakespeare's tragedy, Othello. And Othello, uh, military commander... Uh, He's given command of of the army, and he has a a soldier that reports to him named Iago that wanted to be promoted to second-in-command. And instead, Cassius is promoted, and Iago begins to connive and plot. He will have that position. And through an incredibly complicated series of deceptions where he's setting everyone else in the play against each other, ultimately what he does is he speaks the suspicion into Othello's ear. He leads Othello to believe that his wife, whom he loves, Desdemona, is having an affair with Cassius. It's not true. But he's setting up circumstances and giving the subtle lie that begins to turn Othello's mind. And what happens? It begins to drive Othello mad. He's now suspicious of the one who is closest to him. And in the end, he murders his wife. On this accusation that has begun to take hold of him. Because that kind of suspicion crushes and kills us and those around us. And James says if that kind of suspicion gets a hold of you in your relationship to God, it will utterly destroy you. Who is responsible for our temptations? Look what he says. Verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted. I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he tempts no one. James's answer is no. It is not God. Do not point your finger there. It's not true, and it will kill you. And he points, in a way of bringing this out, he points uh, this and roots it in the character of God. Look what he says about God. God cannot be tempted with evil. Now, it's a little bit hard for us to get our hands around that, because we know what it is like to be tempted by evil. What's he say? God is utterly pure utterly good, utterly holy. There is no one like Him in the universe. He is good, and evil has no hold on Him. When evil comes at God, God doesn't have the other side of the Velcro strip. There's nowhere for it to stick comes right off. There is nothing for evil to get hold of in God. This is what Isaiah came up against in Isaiah chapter 6 when he gets this vision of God seated on the throne. He sees God in heaven and he says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He is undone when he sees the goodness and the holiness of God. And that's what James reminds us of. God cannot be tempted with evil. And then he goes on and says, and therefore God tempts no one with evil. You know, you can't tempt someone with something you have not bought into yourself at some level, right? You can't make it look enticing for someone else unless you found it enticing yourself. He says, God is good. He is unstained by evil and he never comes at us to tempt us, to tear us down to destroy us. He does not do that. Our God is good. And James says from the very start, temptations and the wrestling with it are one of the most significant struggles we have in life. But you have to know this, your temptations do not come from God and they do not have their hold on you because of God. Now that brings up then the very real question, where do they come from? Why do they feel so strong? Now you might be here this morning and, um, You know, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Or maybe you're here and you're thinking, I'm not even sure I really believe in God. Well, I mean, look at your own life, though. Aren't there things that grab a hold of your heart sometimes that you just know at the core of your being? They are wrong, but they have got their grip on you. Why? Or if you are a Christian, a professing Christian, you have maybe a better vocabulary for what's going on. It's called, you know, it's called sin. You know what is going on in your heart. But you too, you and I know what it feels like when temptation comes and just gets us by the throat. What is going on? Well, James thinks it's important for us to know. So he looks at, um, he looks away from what is not the source. It does not come from God. He looks at the true source. Verse fourteen. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. He says the true source of our temptation doesn't lie out there, it lies in here. It is, it is, comes from, it springs from our desire. Now we have to, we have to hear that word rightly because the way we use the word desire and rightly, um, desire is not in and of itself a bad thing. We all desire lots of good things. We are, that's a part of our makeup as human beings. God created us that way. God is a God who has desires. He desired to create people that would be in relationship with Him. We ran away. And He desired to restore that relationship so deeply and so badly that He sent His Son Jesus to the cross to win us back. God has desires. He delights. Delights in His creation. Delights in His people. And we have right desires as well. All kinds of good things. We, we, have, we experience right desire, but we also experience desire that is very harmful, don't we? And uh, New Testament talks about this, he uses the word that's used here in Greek for desire. A few times in the New Testament, it's used to talk about very good desires. For one example, Jesus on the night when he is betrayed, right before he goes to celebrate uh, the Passover meal, what has become for us the Last Supper, he says uh, to his disciples, he says, I have eagerly desired to celebrate this meal with you. Same word, I've eagerly desired. And it's used similarly in other places in the New Testament, but very often, in fact, most often, this word in the New Testament is used as it is here for desires that have gone wrong, that have gotten off track. Um, the The Greek word here uh, the, it starts with the prefix epi, which is sort of this um, intensifying prefix. It's it, These are desires that are over-desires. <laughs> That have become controlling desires for us. Now you can think of a, a thousand things, maybe in your own life, where you know that you have a, where you where you hit these desires for something that you just know is it's prohibited, it's out of bounds. You know what it's like to want something that you know is not right under any circumstances. But here's the more subtle way this tends to hit us: the desires that we have for things that are legitimate and good, but become controlling desires for us. Legitimate things that begin to take over for us and become over-desires. James says those can destroy us. Let me give you a few examples. Um, If you're a parent, it is a a right and legitimate desire to to want your children to respect you. right? I mean, that's, that's a right desire. That's the way God set it up to be, and children should respect their parents. But let's say you have the child who does not respect you. Let's say you have the child who is turning his or her back on you. Every time you speak into their life, the roll of the eyes, the ignoring, the blatant disregard, the blatant um, rebellion. Okay, now is that, is that going to grieve you as a parent? Of course it is. And it should. But what happens when that desire for respect becomes an over-desire, a controlling desire? Then it's not just the broken heart of this. It's not just the honest calling out to God. But I will make... This child, respect me. It's the last thing I do, right? A good desire that's now got you by the throat. Or maybe it's a legitimate desire for appreciation. Okay, let's say um, at work you do good work and and you want it to be appreciated and recognized. Totally legitimate. There's that guy in the cubicle right next to you uh, that seems to be getting all the appreciation, all the raises, all the kudos for the work that the two of you have been doing together on the project and nothing for you. Are you going to be hurt? Oh, well, of course you are. You're working hard. But what happens when that desire begins to control you, when it begins to take over? That person is getting the appreciation that I deserve. You begin to speak to yourself about that person. Pretty soon you begin to speak to others about that person. You know how it goes when it gets a hold of our hearts, Maybe you just come home after a long day, and you just want some rest. Entirely legitimate desire. Or you've been home all day with your children, maybe, and you just want some rest. You come home, you just want to put your feet up on the the coffee table and sit there for a minute, and then there are these small people who share the house with you. (laughs) They're crying. They want stuff all the time. And your spouse strangely looks frazzled after a day with these small people all day long, you know? (laughs) Is it so wrong that I just want a break? Can I just rest for a minute? Is that such a crime? Is the over-desire that begins to take over. A legitimate desire for a break that suddenly becomes selfishness and hardness. You know what it's like. When our desires become over desires, and James is telling us that these have this power to grab a hold of us, and our temptations come leaping out from within us. The imagery that James uses here in um, verse fourteen, he says, "Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire." And originally, this was a fishing metaphor. You know, you put the bait on the hook. You try to make it look good. You put it in the prime spot and you wait and hope that something will take the bait and swallow the hook. And James says your desire is lurking in you, trying to do that to you and to me. You know, James is pointing out for us that whatever point we are tempted, at whatever point we move on from temptation to sin, we can never blame the thing out there. It is always a matter of the thing inside, the thing in here. Let me give you an uh, example. I heard this this week. Glass of water. Okay. Now, if I shake this glass, which I'm not going to do because then I will slip on the water and fall. But, I'm, but if I were to shake this, what? shake it hard, what is going to come out of this glass? Water. Okay? If I shake it hard, what is going to come? Water. Why? Why does water come out of this cup? Let me ask it another way. Why does water come out of this cup? Because there's water in the cup. I can shake this cup all day long and I won't get my cup of Starbucks. It won't come out because it's water. And that's what James is saying. When the trials of our life come and shake us, what comes spilling out? He says temptation does. It comes from your desires. Why? Because that is what's inside. It's in us it has us now point 2 the danger of our temptations to guard you from temptation let, let me let you know that the first point was the long one <laughs> good you're still listening the danger of temptation so so what i mean you know there's one way to read this and be like okay temptation it lurks from desire that's within us but i mean come on now we we're only human Right? I mean, to err is human. We've all got foibles. We've all got failings. And there go those Presbyterians again making such a big deal about it. Right? All those things in us. Well, a couple things that James points us to about temptation. Uh, First, let me say this on the side. You know, Scripture... uh, It is clear in other places that to be tempted is not the same thing as to sin. For example, Jesus, uh, when he's in the desert, he is tempted by Satan, throwing all kinds of temptation at him, and Jesus successfully navigates it without ever sinning. There was no Velcro for him. Those temptations don't hook his heart. But you know and I know from our own experience so often with us that they do. And James gives us a picture here of um, the danger of our temptations. Look, look with me at verse uh, 15. Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. What does he say? Your desire, with temptation, it, it conceives and out comes sin. And the ultimate end of sin is death. And for James, this is death with a capital D. This is Ultimate death, this is spiritual death, this is ultimate and utter separation from God kind of death. He says that is where temptation and sin lead us. He says the problem runs that deep and the stakes are that high. The road of temptation, he said, it leads us ultimately to death. Uh, I I grew up in uh, middle Tennessee, Nashville, Tennessee, and and I-40 runs right through Nashville, And so most of my uh, traveling over, actually my whole life, is centered one way or the other around I-40. It's the interstate that I took back and forth from college in North Carolina. And my wife and I lived in North Carolina for a while. We're always on I-40. And if you're to take I-40 through North Carolina, you'll come to Wilmington, North Carolina. There's a day we were in Wilmington and we're getting back on I-40. And we see the sign right there as you get on to I-40. And it says, Barstow, California. 2,559 miles. Why? Because I-40 ends in Barstow, California. And you don't think about that when you get on that road. But if you stay on that road, you're going to end up in Barstow. That is where you are going. And James says when we get on this road, it ends in death. That is where this road leads. Okay. Now, where's the off-ramp? How do we get off this road? Okay, last point, the path through our temptations. Look at what James says in the last few verses. Where does he take us? He says, temptations have us. Desire comes from within. And he says, this kind of desire, this kind of temptation, it has got our life on a course that leads to death. How are we going to see this thing through? Look with me at verse 16, 17, and 18. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Okay, all this about God being the Father of heavenly lights and giver of gifts, He's contrasting what came earlier in this passage. He says, God does not lead you into temptation. Here He says, God is good. And he is a good giver. He says God is the Father of lights. He's using creation imagery. Again, if you were to go back to the first few chapters of Genesis, he said God is a Father who creates, who created all the light that, are, that is there. You go out in the, on a clear night and you see stars twinkling. You see the moon rising. During the day we see the sun. All those lights in the sky, that's what James has in mind. These are astronomical terms. He says those lights, they were put there by God. He is the Father of of lights. But here's the thing: he's not like those lights. No variation, no shadow of change. You go out on a beautiful night, and you see a full moon. A couple of weeks later, you'll see almost no moon. Come out in midday today after lunch, it's a beautiful day, and you're gonna see everything clearly. At the end of the day, there are gonna be long shadows as the sun goes down once more. The stars, beautiful but twinkling. You can never quite get your eyes quite on them. What does James say? He says, God is not like that. With him there is no setting of the sun. There's no dimming of the moon. There is no, there's no dimmer switch on the lights. He is good. He is good. He is good. And his goodness shines through always. It never sets. So as we wrestle with uh, people trying to find our way through these temptations, he says, first, look to God's goodness. That is the one, he is the one that we are in relationship with, this good God. Then he points us to God's greatest gift, in fact, this good God who gives good gifts. Look at verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. He is using language here that is in contrast to the language before. What, is, what does sin bring forth? Death. What does God bring forth in us? Life. Life. Real life. Saved life. Eternal life. Renewed life. Regenerated life. The kind of life it speaks of in... 2 Corinthians 5, when it says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. He says, God comes by the word of truth, which in the New Testament, the way it's used, is is another way of saying the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection for us. He says, this good news brings us to spiritual life. That is the good gift of the Father. What is the thing that rescues us from the end point on this road? It is Jesus' goodness and sacrifice for us. It is His good for us. That is the only way to really find an off-ramp off this road and the death to which it leads. Now, I've never taken I-40 all the way to Barstow, but again, I went back and forth on it many times for years. James says, for those who are in Christ, you will ultimately never end up at the final destination of this kind of spiritual death. But you know what it's like to get on the road and ride for a while, don't you? What's going to break the power of that for us? At the end of 18, he says there, he brought us forth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In the Old Testament, when people brought as an offering their first fruits, literally the, the first produce from the crop that year, or the, the, the first um, you know, baby lambs that were born into their flock that year, they brought those and dedicated them to God as an offering. And they were the first part. And the best part of what they had to offer. And James here is saying, for those who are in Christ, he says, we are God's first fruits. He says, we are his treasured thing out of all creation. Do you know that he means that about us? And how might that affect the way we look at the temptations of our life? This is what God has called us out to be. He wants more from you than simply your obedience. He wants more, much more from you than simply your good behavior. Look at verse 12. We'll finish with this. Back at the start of our passage. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. What does God want for us? A relationship of love with him. He wants us to know His goodness in that kind of intimate, powerful way. Not just some divine scheme in the universe by which God purchases your salvation, but our God pursuing us, laying His love on us, and calling us out into relationship with Him. A relationship of love and of care and of devotion. The kind of relationship that then becomes the center of everything for you. All those over-desires now finding their right place. Is normal desires, because you have a new desire, a new center, a new controlling point. It is the love of God for you, God's love for us. He wants that for us. Now, some of you might be thinking, I'm a professing Christian. I've been at this for a long, long time. I still think you are speaking something like a foreign language. And let me just say this to you And on some days, that's saying this to me. God wants more for us. He wants your heart. He wants the whole thing. He wants to be the joy, the love at the very center of everything for you. James says, how are we going to resist temptation? When we look to God with that kind of love, when we know His love that deeply, when that becomes a center point for us, it's going to get us off the road. We'll be looking for the next exit. Get me off of here. I want to go home. And let me give you just one way to apply this. don't have any time to unpack it, so I'm just going to say it. What is going to help you along the way with that? Well, here is one thing of many. Be known. And be known here. If you're a part of this church, you need people, some people, not everyone, you need some people in this church who know you, who have an in with you, people for whom you're you're opening the gate into your backyard and letting them take a look. And step inside and comment. People that have an invitation to step in and say, what in the world are you doing? What is going on? You need people pulling you back to the love of Jesus daily. And so do I. And that is part of what being a church together means. That we are brothers and sisters in this deal together. There is no solo Christianity. You need others that might come in your home group. It might come with a couple uh, other students who attend here that you know and you pray with on campus. It might be one of the women's Bible studies. It could be a lot of things, but you must be known. And that means for those of you out there that are the hermits, come out of your shell. That also means for those of us out there that are the most gregarious, friendly people around, and everybody feels like they know us, but we know deep down no one knows us at all. You come out too. We are in this together. May we continually be coming home together. Let's pray. Father, we do pray and even cry out to you, some of us very deeply in the midst of trials, very real ones right now, would you meet us? Would you give us the wisdom that we need? And would you guard us from the temptation that so quickly hooks our hearts as our desires come leaping out? We need a new affection. We need new and straightened out desires. The desire above you, above all else. And from there, that we might freely enjoy the things you bring our way, the legitimate things, without letting them control us that we might be able to say thank you when they are here and we might be able to trust you when they are not because you are our desire, the desire of our hearts. Would you grow that kind of love in us towards you because we know that you have that love for us already in Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.